Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Paul Wells. Yes? Listeners said to me recently, how come you uh, go so easy on Paul Wells? I'm going to give you a hard time today, Paul. <laughs> Get in line. I'm very suggestible. Get in line. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I think that's probably a fair call. I think you probably yeah. do go easy on me. So, Paul, today we're going to talk about how am I supposed to protect my children from 30 to 50 feral white teenagers? We're going to talk about columnists, Paul. Who needs them? A columnist weighs in on an anti-columnist column. Finally, Paul, if you're getting your facts wrong about the news, there's a good chance that you're reading the news. Good to have you. Always happy to help. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Robin Batchelor, Bonnie Sun, Jonathan Weissman, Matthew Nefsted, Nicole Koslowski, David Gazelle, Emily Rossi, and Terry Latorco. I support Canada Land because over the years of supporting and listening to Jesse, it's become clear that the holistic approach to media criticism in Canada includes covering stories that integrate voices that haven't been included in news cycles and voices that are overlooked. It's important. Canada Land and Jesse's team aren't just criticizing media, they're working to correct the issues in Canadian media. And Paul, like I said, it's brought to you by FreshBooks. Now, Paul, this world of freelancing and invoicing people, you're a stranger to it. You've been a paycheck recipient for decade upon decade. Am I right about that? I'm pleased to have been jobless for precisely one week in the last 30 years. And it's left me essentially unable to deal with the modern world. Well, time has moved on, Paul. Uh, and, <laughs> and now 
everybody has to have the functionality of a business, of an independent operation. Everybody has to have an accounting department, but some of us are challenged when it comes to accounting and numbers and things like that. Luckily for us, there is, uh, there's FreshBooks, which is invoicing software, yes. Uh, it's also a great way to chart your expenses. Quickly just take a picture of that receipt, just crumple it into a little ball and throw it away. Your expense has been filed. You can get paid directly through FreshBooks, and then you just basically just like plug your accountant into this thing at the end of the year, and that whole unpleasant task is done. It saves so much time. I was using it before they were a sponsor of the show, but they were the first sponsor of the show, so I'm pretty fond of them. Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. You can try this out for free for 30 days. Once again, freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. Okay, Paul, uh, I'm going to run through this. Everybody knows this stuff, but I think it, it's helpful just to kind of like look at it, what's happened this summer. On July 23rd, the Globe and Mail reported that teenage fugitive Briar Schmigelski, who was wanted with Cam McLeod for three murders, had an online history of extreme far-right views, posturing and posing with military regalia and Nazi imagery. Three days later, Friday, July 26, a Toronto man named Michael Job allegedly viciously stabbed a stranger at the Beaches Jazz Festival in Toronto. On Twitter, uh, screenshots that seem to be from his social media profiles reveal extreme right neo-Nazi beliefs, conspiracy theories, soldiers of Odin support, Holocaust denial, Islamophobia, Christchurch nonsense. A week after that, this past Saturday. 21-year-old man allegedly opened fire in a Walmart in El Paso, killing 22 people, injuring many more after writing a screed, a racist screed against Hispanic immigration. The shooter was preaching the racist great replacement theory, uh, the same one that motivated the Christchurch killer. And the very next day, another young white man allegedly opened fire in a nightclub in Dayton, Ohio, killing nine people, six of whom were black. Authorities say that the alleged shooter had a fascination with violent ideologies. They, for some reason, have not said which violent ideologies, but they made a point of saying that there is no evidence that the attack was race-related. I put those all together, Paul, to describe to you what I feel like can only be looked at as, uh, I mean, we are in the midst of an angry young white guy murder epidemic this summer. And I guess the role for media criticism here, I mean, sometimes we look at these things and we say, oh, is it fair how they're being portrayed, the lone wolf thing, mental illness versus, you know, uh, ideologies or associations? And is this being, I'm not even talking about that right now. It almost feels like we're just waiting for the next one of these to occur. And what I want to ask you about, Paul, is on a basic level of, of the media's responsibility for public safety, the role that we have to play in terms of public safety, should we not be saying loudly and consistently, report angry young men immediately. If you see something, say something. If you encounter a young white man online who's talking about shooting or violent imagery or Nazis or things, tell the authorities. If your creepy brother is talking about this kind of stuff, tell the authorities. We had no such compunction about doing that when the threat was Islamic terror. We asked the Muslim community to essentially, we, we deputized them and said, you need to turn in your own bad apples and we opened up all kinds of snitch lines and we were on the on high alert for anyone who was who was expressing ISIS sympathies or things like that. I've seen nothing like that. We know who the perps are. Should we not be doing that right now? Well, I think we should in the cases that you described, but I'm I'm a little confused. Do you know a lot of people who are online talking like do you know the names of specific people who are online saying they're going to be shooting soon? 
Because I actually, it may be that this is all kind of bubbled up since I quit Twitter, but I actually don't know the names of anyone who's online saying they're going to start shooting soon. If I come across such people, I actually plan to notify the police. And I think that's probably good counsel. But I, I like I think it's actually a little more mysterious than you're letting on. I think <laughs> if we look at that list of people, almost all of them, it's not like they were writing this stuff in their diaries. Yeah. They were online communicating with other people posing with swastikas and guns and things like that. Now, I don't know which of them said I'm going to do this and which of them just were trying to look cool. Yeah. But when I was a younger man online, I certainly uh, participated in forums where people said all kinds of stupid shit. And I think that like a lot of people who encounter these people before they became uh, murderous, you just kind of brush it off as dumb posturing. Yeah. Okay. So that is a, that is a fair appeal then to make to the moderate 8chan community if there is such a thing. I, I don't spend any time on 8chan, so I don't know whether there are cheerful moderates on 8chan. And even then, I mean, in the Christchurch case and in the El Paso case, I believe in both instances, the alleged perp dumped their manifesto online on their way to commit the murders. So I'm not sure that the time turnaround was, you know, sufficient, but yeah, no. Briar you know. uh they interviewed a, a, a former uh, student uh, classmate who said that, yeah, he was always talking about killing me and how he would kill me and kill himself. Michael Job, the screenshots that have been shared were from, I, I don't know that these have been independently verified. They yeah. seem to be accurate to my estimation uh, from his Facebook page. Yeah, I think that there's a fair amount of these where there was there was prior broadcasting, you know, maybe to small groups of people. I don't know. I mean, like, it seems like a distinct possibility that that the next person who does this will have a history like this, meaning that those clues and signals are out there right now. I'm not. It's sort of a separate conversation as to whether or not law enforcement is looking for that stuff as um, diligently as they look for signs of Islamic extremism. But from a media standpoint, I see that in the case of the Ohio shooter, the authorities are saying, yeah, he had violent ideologies and don't worry, it wasn't race related. It seems like they're trying to tamp down concerns or tamp down the idea that there's a pattern here as opposed to there is a pattern. And if there's a pattern, we can get ahead of the next one and we need the public's help. Yeah. So I'm being a little bit argumentative with you, but it's easy to stipulate to a lot of what you're saying. It's really clear that that racism has driven an awful lot of mass murders in the last little while. It is clear that a lot of it was preceded by online behavior and that when, you know, those of us who might at some point be lucky or unlucky enough to witness the spectacle of a known person announcing intention to to commit capital crimes. Absolutely. That's a, that's a problem worth reporting to the authorities. And I also think that the reason why we've seen so many racist incidents is because there's a racist in the White House. In every case, it's like global warming. It, it can be difficult to draw a one-to-one relationship between, between provocation and act, but a general atmosphere is, uh, is a general atmosphere. And, and Donald Trump has been excusing the violent dictatorships of terrible people in, in various world capitals. He's been making excuses for the, the Charleston protesters, one of whom ran into an audience. I mean, you know, it's pretty clear that there's been something going on. Uh, that, you know, well, he's been inciting. He's been inciting violence. Yeah. He, he talks about people go back to your country when they're from America. He talks about shithole countries. He, he openly, you know, asked for violence and encouraged violence and excused violence and, and even offered to uh, pay legal bills for violence when he was campaigning. I mean, this is, I, I don't think we have to pussyfoot around this. There's a racist president who incites people to violence and is a hate monger. Yeah. I mean, and it's funny because race hate has been at the center 
of his public action for as long as he's been in the public eye, right? His first appearance on the front page of the New York Times was in the early 1970s when the Justice Department went after him and his father for refusing to rent to black people. You know, that was that was more than a decade before most people had even heard the name Donald Trump. You could go on from there with frequent installments in that kind of lurid bank of hatred. Um yeah, so I mean, that's I, I actually don't think that's controversial. So then you look at the New York Times today, where they're apologizing for a headline where they say, oh, Trump is, is uh, advocating for unity against racism. I guess that was a bad headline on our part. I see that as just uh, one signal amongst uh, many of just how unequal to the task and unequal to the moment the media is in America and here in Canada. Like we are, you know, as much as we endeavor to find patterns when everyone was on the lookout for Islamic terrorism. It seems like we are so determined to ignore the patterns in this instance. Yeah. Although here's another pattern. The New York Times has prosecuted the case against Donald Trump hundreds of times a week for the last decade. And then they make one bad headline and an awful lot of Democratic presidential candidates say, well, I guess we can't trust the New York Times. Yeah. You know what? I, I think the New York Times, you know, they got the Trump bump in subscriptions for a reason. They're, you know, doing excellent journalism all the time. But it's a familiar refrain from from reporters and journalists such as yourself, Paul, to say, oh, is this, oh hey, is this where you're going to be hard on me? Pay no attention to the above the fold headline of the biggest newspaper. Pay no attention to the headline because it's our work, us reporters in the nitty gritty in paragraph five that really matters. I think we need to pay more attention to the framing of the news, more attention to the headlines, more attention to the images. Well, that might explain why the New York Times changed that headline by the second edition. Yeah, and 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 Dean Baquette has has taken responsibility for it. But I think that there is a bit of introspection necessary as opposed to just this being a technical error as to why that happened in the first place and you know what could be done differently. I really think that most people who are working in in whatever branch of the news uh, industry are really trying their best to get big questions right and and it's perfectly legitimate for people either their colleagues in the industry or people online to bust them when they screw up. I believe that over time, this is a self-correcting mechanism. Well, that's your opinion. <laughs> Moving on to our second topic, I believe you have a, an opinion about uh, an opinion column that's about opinions. Paul, whose opinion are you going to make me talk about today? Yeah, it's our friend Mark Bury, who I know is a fan of yours. So the other day, people were passing around this, uh, some friends of mine were passing around this column called The Problem with Columnists. And it turns out it's by author and academic and Ottawa guy, Mark Bury, who's launched this um, website called Fair Press, which he launched basically to complain about you, Jesse, and your coverage of uh, of the WE movement and, and, and the Kielberger brothers and so on. And, and now he just complains about everything. And, you know, dead of summer, slow week, he's complaining about uh, columnists. And the thing that struck me as I read it was most of what he's saying struck me as essentially fair call, uh, pretty reasonable. It begins, newspaper publishers love opinion writers for the same reason TV news networks use so many journal panels. Uh, they're cheap. In fact, they cost much less per word than reporters. The copy flows in every day. And then he goes on and says that columns aren't risky. The people who tend to rise as columnists tend to say acceptable things. And that unlike news reporters who go out and and dig up misfeasance on the part of potential sponsors of the newspaper and so on. Columnists just go and say, uh, the prime minister is lazy or whatever. And, and, and everyone can live with that. And then he says that there's not a lot of diversity among columnists and that they tend to be old and come from, uh, you know, they're essentially old white guys. And I got to say, you know, guilty. And, you know, on and on. It's a pretty, it's a kind of a soup to nuts indictment of the, the, the craft of column writing. I got to say, a lot of this is true. There's not a lot of diversity among columnists. There's not a lot of columnists who will stun you with their really surprising attack on the system. 
There honestly used to be more. I mean, who's around today who's as uh, essentially anti-capitalist as Rick Salutin, who's been granted the prominence that Rick Salutin might have had 30 years ago? So to some extent, it's becoming more sclerotic. And and anyway, I just thought I'd like to kick off a a conversation about it. Some of it is awfully self-serving. Like at one point, Mark... uh, says that uh, pedigree counts, that these people come from only the finest families. Well, my God, I mean, I'm a school teacher's son from Sarnia. And then he turns around and says that not enough of us have PhDs. Well, the only reason I can think that that's a germane uh, charge for Mark to make is that he's pretty proud of his own PhD. But in general, I think that he has uh, accurately put his finger on a lot of what's wrong with, you know, my breed as a breed. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Where to begin? First of all, (laughs) Way to throw your family under the bus, Paul. <laughs> I think you come from one of the finest families, uh, whatever you have to say about them. Here's the thing about Mark Burry. When Mark isn't on some mysterious crusade, promoting his own tweets, getting basic facts wrong, editing his articles without indication, libeling, you know, usually me, or sometimes being very abusive to other people, when he's not doing those things, he's actually a pretty smart and knowledgeable guy with a career in journalism and and, and a PhD uh, and some varied interests. And I think that uh, it's nice to see, you know, I think we should have a lot more media criticism. So now that fairpress.ca is not a one-issue website that is weirdly focused on our coverage of the, of the, the Kilbergers, it's nice to see him branching out and actually doing some media criticism. And I think I, I happen to agree. I don't, I don't know that it's the most original batch of insights. I think that the, the fact that column writing is, uh, is cheap and in Canada is, uh, you know, kind of boring and stayed and has become like a kind of a sinecure that people retire to is well-trod territory, but it's all true. I mean, Sean Craig on this show in the past mentioned that there's, there's an idea out there that like nobody should have to file three columns a week as their job for year after year. It forces you to be lazy. It forces you to be uh, controversial on purpose and get behind ideas you don't agree with. Um, and really, people should have stints as a columnist. We should hear what people have to say, and then they can move on because you just can't keep it up. I do think that the age of the columnist in Canada is coming to an end. Would you agree with that? Like, I, I don't think that these jobs that, you know, and, and they're some of the best paid jobs for a lucky few. Maybe you're one of them. I don't know, Paul, but, you know, people, it's kind of like widely known that Christy Blatchford and Andrew Coyne are really well paid. Margaret Wente, very highly paid columnists. I don't know that anyone is going to get that job uh, after those people retire. I think that's absolutely true. Look, anyone who was around and was the subject of a bidding war when Conrad Black had his money in the game is paid unrealistically uh, high amounts of money even today. And if there is somebody, you know, 27 years old and hip and woke and really desperate to spend a lot of time following committee meetings on Parliament Hill so they can explain what it means in a very different way from the way I do it. Uh, I feel for that person. And I am on some days a little apologetic about how I cling to my job. <laughs> but um, I'm actually not aware of that's a, okay. You could be you could be a lot even. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm actually I'm actually not aware of a rising generation of aspiring national columnists. And I'm not like a lot of Have things, of like a lot of things that are in that are changing constantly about our our industry these days, I'm not sure that's a bad thing. Like I'm not sure the world is going to need a hell of a lot of people like me once I'm done with my thing. I I persist in the belief that what I do is valuable at a human level and not just in a market. And I I try my best to do a good job of it. But um, uh, in the meantime, yeah, we don't like Chantal Bear, Andrew Coyne, Paul Wells. Uh, we don't look like the next generation of Canadian journalism. 
Well, the next generation of Canadian journalism exists and nobody's giving them those jobs. You know, Sarah Haji was on Twitter recently talking about like, what do these people have to do to lose their jobs? These columns are terrible and she wasn't wrong. You know, you have, uh, you know, Desmond Cole was a columnist for the Toronto Star. Vicky Machama had a column. They, they didn't keep their columns. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not like these voices aren't out there. Uh, Andre Demise remains a contributor to McLean's. A uh, service yes. to Sh- Romanian has, has begun a monthly column in our print edition, w- which makes me happier than most of the things that have happened in McLean's in the last year. Um, the only person I can think of who's doing this as their job uh, is, is Denise Balkasun for The Globe, and she's terrific. But a lot of these people, you know, and that's just a sign of the times of generational divide in journalism. They're, they're doing contracts. They're disposable. And they, they, they tend to have, uh, I mean, maybe it's only right that columnists, as we said earlier, should have a shorter shelf life, though the way that Desmond's column ended was not because he was out of things to say. But the, yeah, the rules the are contrary. definitely different yeah. for your generation. Yeah, I mean, um, I, like I will say that McLean's has also not been hiring a hell of a lot of 55-year-old white guys from from the better families in the last decade. It's just been at our shop, as at so many other shops, wave after wave after wave of uh, of layoffs and, and, and buyouts. And in that environment, uh, you know, if a former communications director to a former prime minister of Canada writes in from London with something clever to say about what just happened in Ottawa, Mark Borey's not wrong. That's a cheap way to, to keep our website fresh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm in a glass house here. This this is sort of the opinion corner of Canada land. Shortcuts does as well as our other stuff. Um, I will say that it it is uh, easier to make this show than it is like a, a heavily reported episode of the Monday show. If we're featuring our own journalism, it could take us months to come up, you know, with, with the content for that. I think it has a role. We try to do it well. Um, and I think that it's true that a lot of people listen to this are both getting their opinion on a story while they're getting the story. And a lot of people like to get their news through people talking about it, which is, I don't know, I like to get my news that way as well. I guess I push back on one of Burry's ideas, and it is a self-serving one, that like you should be an expert on a topic to write a column about it. I kind of disagree strongly with that. I feel like you know, try to get it right and try to know what you're talking about. But sometimes to be the best proxy for your reader is to go into something. I mean, and, and it's just as a necessity because you're not writing about one specialized topic, uh, you know, every single time to go into it and say, I'm trying to orient myself with this thing. Here's my understanding of it. And let's let's bring in people who can kind of disabuse me of these notions. Let's open up a conversation. Sometimes that's there's, sometimes there's value to ignorance. Is this making any sense to you? Like, I, I think that it, it, it can be worthwhile to say something new has come across my attention. I'm trying to make sense of it. Let me share that process with you. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's as valid a, a course for columnists to pursue as for anyone else to pursue. Look, there's an eternal tension between journalism as a sort of a guild that there's some sort of accreditation process for and journalism as a very Anglo-Saxon, all hands on deck, do it if you can. Somebody will bust you if you screw up. Uh, don't worry too much about the rules. And I've always tended to prefer the, the the latter course. But I mean, again, the general critique that columnists coast as they go along, look, the temptation to coast is ever present. It's one of the reasons why I try to get on a plane, you know, with some frequency and go somewhere in the world where something's happening and I'm a stranger and nobody has to talk to Paul Wells and nobody cares what Paul Wells is going to write about them so that I have to earn. I mean, you're uh, routinely mobbed on the streets back home, so it's just a necessity for your well-being. Well, I'm, I'm mobbed on one street, Spark Street. Um, <laughs> in the rest of the, in the rest of the country, people have a slightly better perspective, which right. is why I try and get out to the rest of the country and to other countries. Because if you stop moving, you die. And I'm conscious of that danger all the time. Paul, I want to thank uh, our second sponsor today, which is HelloFresh. 
HelloFresh will send you the ingredients to your door in an insulated box and instructions on how to make delicious food like Turkish spiced beef with pickled cabbage and garlic tomb sauce. This is not something that you're just going to be like, what do I want to cook tonight? How about I'll pickle some cabbage and whip up a quick garlic tomb sauce? I don't know, unless you're Turkish, I suppose. But you can do that in under 30 minutes with HelloFresh. Are you a home cook, Paul? Oh, I sure am. I find that it can be difficult to get out of your routine of things that you like to cook. And uh, I think, you know, HelloFresh, a lot of it, it's like it's geared towards people who don't have a background in cooking. You don't need one to use HelloFresh. But if you do, I like to cook as well. It teaches me new stuff that I didn't know how to do. And pickling, pickling, you can pickle things quickly. And pickles, I'm a big fan of the pickle. I am. I'm notoriously a fan of the pickle, yes. Um, and I've been thinking about pickling lately. So now I've, I'm, I'm looking for HelloFresh. Yeah, everything is bursting and, and in season. It's a good time to pickle stuff. Find the meal plan that works for you. You can pick a pronto veggie or family plan. Fresh pre-measured ingredients, easy to follow, pictured recipe cards, and fresh pre-portioned ingredients. You'll be good to go in 30 minutes or less. For 50% off of your first box of HelloFresh, go to hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand50 and enter CanadaLand50. Once again, hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand50. You get half off your first box with promo code CanadaLand50. Paul Wells, you're an old hand. Let's duly note some things. Okay. Um, Dominic Rabb, the British foreign minister, was in Toronto on Tuesday, uh, standing next to Christopher Freeland. And um, my dear colleagues in the press gallery didn't ask Freeland a single damn question about Brexit, which was the only reason that Rabb does anything these days. It's 12 days since he became foreign minister to a Brexit-obsessed government. And instead, they asked Freeland, uh, what's new in Venezuela? What's new with China and the Canadian detainees there? And I get all the reasons why you need the minister. You need a clip of her talking on the story of the day. But at some point, our sophistication becomes counterproductive. This was our chance to get her on the record about something that's absolutely going to grip and convulse Britain for the foreseeable future. And it's disappointing that we didn't take that chance. What would you have asked her? Well, the guy standing next to you just said that you uh, you agree to a seamless transition of trade agreements after Brexit. Uh the Canadian government is on the record as as disagreeing. Uh, why why do you let him lie? You know, as he stands next to you, like why don't you say to him and to the British people that it's going to be a hell of a lot more complex than that? That's a good question, Paul. We got to get you away from these columns and uh, <laughs> back in the field. You should have been there. Duly noted. I got one. What do you got? I mentioned Sean Craig earlier. Uh, he tweeted that uh, Calgary Herald columnist Licia Corbella, who has written in favor of Jason Kenney and his United Conservative Party including during the 2019 Alberta election, turns out she was a member of the United Conservative Party. She voted for Kenny in its most recent leadership race. And she had previously said that this was not the case. She, she previously tweeted, I'm not a partisan. Just a week before the UCP held a leadership election, which she voted in. Uh, is this a big deal, Paul? Um, I think it was fair to to bust her on it. It was it was good call by Sean, and it was uh, it was appropriate of the Calgary Herald to say we didn't know she was a member of the party she was writing about. She should not have been, and we've reminded everyone that they shouldn't be. That being said, I got to say, Lisa Carbella is going to write the same damn stuff about Alberta politics low end of the end of days, whatever party card she may or may not hold. Yeah, it's not a shocker or anything, and it's like, it's a little bit too, too. I mean, Post Media is like trying to cut deals with Kenny to be a part of their like anti-environmentalist war room. So I'm not, my monocle isn't falling out that their <laughs> pro-Kenny columnist voted for Kenny. I do think that the fact that she misrepresented that is uh, somewhere between a bad look and a fireable offense. 
I think it's within the realm of possibility that for a minute she forgot she held a party card in the newly created Conservative Party of Alberta. Whoops, I slipped and joined the United Conservative Party. Was that me? Uh, Yeah, duly noted. Paul, for our last topic today, I want to talk about real data on fake news. There is a report. It has just come out. It is under embargo, as you and I record, but by the time people are listening to this episode, the embargo will be lifted and we can talk about this report. Can I give you some background? Sure. So this is a public policy forum is the think tank, uh, former Globe and Mail editor-in-chief Edward Greenspan is its president and CEO. He's been on the show before. They, of course, were you know paid, hired by the Trudeau government initially to do the Shattered Mirror report, which was, uh, you know, should we do a media bailout? Are there problems with the media? Here's some money. Go find out for us and give us a report. He comes back with a report that um, I criticized and I think quite substantial. There was good reason to. Uh, I think about 16 times in that report, um, it said fake news, fake news, fake news is a real problem in Canada. And no substantiation was given for that outside of the fact that fake news was a problem in the American election. That report then fueled back into the political machinery and uh, I think lent justification to the Trudeau government in deciding to bail out the media and not just bailing out the media, but what are we trying to do here? Are we trying to make sure that there's journalism in Canada or are we trying to prop up the newspapers? And also, what do we do about this fake news thing? So the government takes the Shattered Mirror report and one of the things they do in addition to the, the media bailout is they make millions of dollars available for fighting fake news, fighting disinformation. Who gets a chunk of that money? Uh, the Public Policy Forum. Public Policy Forum gets another contract to do this report that just came out. And here is uh, how it was announced last year. They are launching a multi-year project to analyze and respond to the increasing amounts of disinformation and hate in the digital public sphere. They will commission research and journalism to gain a greater understanding of how disinformation is growing in the digital ecosystem. I think that's interesting. They're setting out to do research on the increasing amounts of disinformation and hate in the digital public sphere. Well, have you established that there is an increasing amount of disinformation and hate in the Canadian digital public sphere? Do you have data on that? So I'm skeptical of this project, but now we have the report and the report is data-based. The report is based on a survey of over a thousand Canadians. And so we actually do have some information, some research about this and uh, the results. Well, let me share the results with you. The findings of our first report are somewhat at odds with the now familiar story of a fragmented and low trust media environment in which political actors and their partisan supporters have retreated to their own media echo chambers, creating fertile ground for disinformation and foreign interference. And Paul, I should mention that this report actually has data. They surveyed a thousand Canadians, unlike uh, the first report where the, the fake news stuff just came out of thin air, they actually asked Canadians and, and measured Canadians' uh, access to misinformation, disinformation. And they found that this opinion bubble, fake news thing, uh, it didn't bear out in their research. I'll quote again. Instead, we found that Canadians are more likely to receive their political news from traditional mainstream media outlets. So we're not all splintering off and getting our news from the rebel. Furthermore, news media preferences are fairly homogenous regardless of which party people support. CBC, CTV, and Huffington Post in the top five print online news sources for supporters of all three major parties. Doesn't matter which party you belong to or support, you're getting your news from those three sources more than anyone else. And uh, ideological news sources, the rebel, post-millennial, rabble, they don't crack the top 20 news sources. They get talked about the most on Twitter by people like uh, you and me, but they don't have much to do with like where people are getting their news. People are getting their news from CBC, CTV, and, and, and HuffPo, which surprised me a little bit. Here's what I found most interesting, Paul. 
The one troubling point, says the report, is that the more people had exposure to traditional or mainstream media, the more misinformed they were. <laughs> the more news consumed by CBC, CTV, the more they got simple questions wrong about what's going on in the world. The more news you read, the more likely you are to get simple questions about the news wrong. So surprise, surprise, the problem in Canada isn't fake news. It's bad news. Yeah. Or it's people who think they know everything because they listen to the world at six, potentially. Uh, Shouldn't you know if you listen to the world at six, like whether our economy is doing better or worse or whether we're having you know more migration or less? Shouldn't you know that if, if you listen to that? Uh, yeah, I think that's fair. So I think I think what this shows is that um, a couple things. Most people don't get their information from the organizations that make the loudest noise. And just because uh, Ezra Levant's on the YouTube biting the heads off of chickens doesn't mean that that a massive audience follows that. I should note, in fairness, that this study finds that Ezra Levant biting the heads off of chickens gets about, about the same size of audience as McLean's does. So that's uh, the, the, the laughs on me. I do wonder about, like, this is basically reported uh, news stories. This is what people say they are following. And um, a lot of people get their news through, through social media, like Facebook especially, in which uh, it's awful hard to tell what the source of, of a piece of information is. And I've seen my own friends share fake news that is congenial to their political views on Facebook, even as they're making fun of those dumb rubes in the States who are, who are um, passing around, you know, Trump memes and stuff like that. I think that this report may actually understate the amount of vulnerability that people have. But I also think that this report suggests that the substantial amounts of money that some news organizations are are allocating to hunt down and uh, debunk fake news, that that might be more effort than the problem actually warrants. I think the election is going to be won and lost based on whether people think they would like Justin Trudeau to be prime minister for four more years, not based on something that got cooked up in a troll den in St. Petersburg. And I, I think we're a little bit overreacting to 2016's events as we prepare for the 2019 election. People know what I think about this. I'm curious what you think about this, because you, you your job is to assess the Canadian political landscape. Have you seen a piece of misinformation, fake news in Canada that's actually gotten traction in Canadian politics? Has, has something caught on that you feel has actually changed people's opinions or changed their votes? No, there's been interesting reporting of stuff that looks like it was fraudulently trumped up and that it got it made some yards uh, in terms of social media traffic. But I haven't had someone faithfully report to me something that I'm sure comes from Russia. Uh, yeah. You know, most of what people get mad at is stuff that the prime minister or Andrew Scheer actually said. And then there's different interpretations about how much importance or what, what to take away from it. But I, you know, most of the arguments that I've heard about politics are things that actually happened. I just think that we, this is going so off the rails here. We really need to reorient ourselves as to what the problem is. I mean, listen to this report. It's a data-based report. Crucially, Canadians tend to be uninformed about key issues. They don't know which answer is right, as opposed to misinformed. It's surprisingly unsurprising. Before this whole fake news panic, the problem was that we don't have nearly as many journalists working as we used to. Things aren't getting covered as well as they used to. The, the things are slipping by entirely. We have a less news conscious and news literate public as a result. That's the problem. And we've somehow gotten wildly off track of that initial quandary of we need more journalism in Canada. Yeah. And then usually when I go down that road, someone comes out to me and says, isn't it a good thing that the federal government's putting $600 million into uh, propping up reliable news sources? And I'm like, 
again, maybe that's not the best possible fix. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? We were talking about in the office this morning, and our managing editor, Kevin, said, well, yeah, you just made an argument in favor of the bailout if the problem is uh, that we've lost all these journalism jobs and maybe we should be giving the money to the newspapers. And I said... Well, that is the argument that the worse they do, that like the worse job they do, maybe if they really misinform people or people are really dumb and news illiterate, then we should give them even more money. You know, <laughs> like they should be rewarded even more so for the fact that even people who, especially the people who are getting their news from CBC and CTV, don't know what's going on. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is just a mess, right? <laughs> like my workspace, my, the previous owner of McLean's cut our workforce by a third to make us more attractive to a buyer. And the buyer has no intention of hiring back those people, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I know Torstar results last week, this year's installment of the bailout money will offset one eighth of Torstar's losses for the quarter, which means uh, it doesn't begin to address the depth of the crisis at Torstar. And, you know, I mean, we could go on for an hour just about how the problems are bigger than the solutions and the solutions are, are boneheaded in the first place. And, you know, um, to some extent, the, the amazing thing is that Trust in traditional news organizations is as high as it is because the whole industry has gone off a cliff. It's really hard to pretend that hasn't happened. Paul Wells, that is your Canada Land Shortcuts for this week. I was happy to bring some cheer into your day. Everybody, uh, I can be emailed at jesse at com. I read everything you send. We are on Twitter at Candleland. Paul Wells, you're not on Twitter. Where are you? I've got a public page on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Spark Street, you know, when I'm feeling lazy. Accost Paul on Spark Street. Uh, don't accost Paul on Spark Street. Go to our website at com. There is a new episode of Commons out this week. Everybody is always so upset about pipelines. What about the biggest oil sands project ever? Just got approved. Find out about it on Commons. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, if you want to see journalism like this in Canada, you can support it at patreon.com slash canadaland and we'll give you some stuff. Please do. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. 
Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. So you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.